Hello and welcome to the Marketing Futures Podcast, member of the ANA Podcast Network. I'm your host, Mike Burbridge. Today we're touching on a subject that's one of the cornerstones of the podcast industry, cults. Stay with me here. A select number of brands have positioned themselves in such a way where their customers aren't just patrons, they aren't just fans, they're fanatics, similar to members of a cult. Our guest today has cracked the code behind brands like this. Chris Neeland is the Chief Evangelist and Revenue Officer of Cult Collective, an organization that helps brands convert their customers into lifelong fanatics. Get it? Convert? Anyway, Chris lays out some of the characteristics shared by cult-like brands, explains why some brands are hesitant to enter the space, and provides pointers to marketers looking to attract true believers. Let's start the show. All right, everyone, we are back in the ANA Marketing Futures virtual podcast studio. And I have to say on a personal note, uh, I've been hosting this podcast for three years and not once have we been able to talk about cults, which makes me feel <laughs> kind of like a poser in the podcasting world. Uh, so we're making things right today. I am so happy. I'm excited to have Chris Neeland, who is the co-founder and the CEO of the Cult Collective in the virtual studio. Chris, thank you so much for stopping by today. Oh, it's my pleasure. I um, I didn't know Colts was a, was was on your bucket list, so I'm happy to fulfill <laughs> that for you. Uh, yeah, I just feel like, uh, you know, if you, you host a podcast somewhere in there, you have to talk about cults sooner or later, or is it even a podcast? But before we begin on talking like cult-like brands, in case uh, our listeners are, are listening in and thinking maybe they have the wrong podcast, <laughs> we're talking about organizations that have demonstrated and kind of imbued themselves with the type of things that make people fanatics, cult-like following. So that is why the cult-heavy intro this morning. Chris, before we start to talk about your company and uh, the, the the things that cult-like brands do, let's hear a little bit about yourself. Tell us about yourself and how your journey led you to co-found the Cult Collective. So I'm a, uh, I'm a husband, celebrated 25 years of marriage last fall. Uh, I just recently learned, I thought I was celebrating 25 years of marriage this fall, but my uh, wife corrected me in a public setting where I <laughs> got the uh, year wrong. Uh, I have three children, most of which are uh, grown and out of the house. I have lived in Calgary, Alberta for the past 11 years. And just this past year, uh, moved to Salt Lake City, Utah. So I came back to the States. I, I'm a Texan. Mm. Uh, I'm actually a mutt. I've lived in nine states and uh, two countries now, but oh wow, I consider myself a Texan at heart. They talk about cults. They did a great job of sort of brainwashing <laughs> me and, and my fellow Texans into, uh, you don't mess with Texas, bigger and better in Texas. And uh, yeah, I've got, a, I've got an advisory firm that, that kind of specializes in customer experience and we help people apply apply the principles, uh, eight specific things that we've learned from sort of studying and decoding the, the cult brand genome, if you will, for mm -hmm. uh, a little over a decade. Yeah, and that's amazing. And honestly, it's it's really a fascinating new way of looking at, not necessarily new way, but probably a fresh way for a lot of our listeners to be thinking about the brand customer relationship. So I'm ready to jump right in. So let's go for it. You said you you kind of broke down the, the DNA of cult-like brands. What are some of the most prominent ways uh, that these brands differentiate themselves from the competition? The, their number one way is their ambition. 
cult brands aspire to be more than just financially successful. Their market dominance is a side effect of pursuing a more noble purpose than just uh, you know, winning a quarter or being profitable. They are some of the most financially viable businesses in the world, but they're, they, they measure themselves by a degree of significance or impact that transcends just transactional relationships. I think cult brands also display a really interesting level of courage. They are the brands that are zigging when others zag. They are the brands that are unapologetically weighing in on social issues, uh, protecting the environment. They, they give us something to react to, and it is polarizing. Um, not everybody loves a cult brand. You take something like Chick-fil-A, right? And Chick-fil-A is consistently voted uh, you know, America's favorite you know, chicken sandwich or even fast food restaurant. And yet they have incredibly conservative and even religious values that are alienating to uh, a lot more liberal people. And some people dig their heels in and boycott Chick-fil-A. Other people say they do that and then they still enjoy the nuggets on the, you know, on the, on the down low. Uh, and um, I just think, you know, you can't, tap into emotions of love and adoration with, without also playing with the flip side of that, which is disdain or, or hate at times. And that's really fascinating. And I think courage is a really good way to put it because that is taking on a lot as a brand where you're not necessarily safe in the transactional, but you're not you're also not, you know, facing that intensity in either direction. So it's interesting. And it might actually play into the next thing I want to talk about, because you mentioned that in your research into finding these distinct behaviors of cult-like organizations, you also identified a few of the reasons that brands don't do this. Maybe even they have the notion that, of course, I would love for my customers to love me fanatically. But what are some of the reasons that a brand won't start going into that area of trying to be cult-like? You know, so I've grown up on how to answer that over the past 10 years. I would have thought in the first half of this journey that they weren't living up to their fullest potential because they were unaware of what good actually looked like. I don't think they had good role models. Mm. Uh, I don't think that they were properly inspired. And so we spent a lot of energy in, a, we, in our books and our social content. We, we do an event every year called The Gathering where we were putting the best of the best on stages and letting people say just like, like, like look, I'm Harley Davidson, an undisputed cult brand, do what I do. And here's how I spend my money. Here's how I organize my teams. Here's how I measure our success. And it didn't have the effect that I hoped that it would. Uh, I do think that inspiration is nice, but what was, you know, the metaphor that I use, Michael, is like a lot of people know how to lose weight. Mm. And yes, pictures of, of, you know, hot bodies can help me say, boy, I wish I looked like that. But that's not actually what's going to get me to go up and, and, you know, start waking up at 6 a.m. and go to the gym or stop eating ice cream for dessert every night. Like I still have a lot of bad behaviors and it really takes something much more intrinsic. And a lot of it is fear. People are worried that they're maybe not as progressive or courageous as they need to be. And a lot of it is status quo, inertia, momentum, you know, the old adage, good is the enemy of great. And so we're like, pretty good. Do we really need to rock the boat and try to do something even better? 
And, um, you know, a lot of it is just the culture of the company. We, we speak with a lot of aspiring cult brand leaders who say, can you convince my boss? Mm-hmm. Or I would if you could convince my board. And so it's very hard to create a cult brand from the bottom up. I don't have a lot of examples of a mutiny that, that <laughs> transpired. It's much more, it's much easier when Howard Schultz of Starbucks or, mm-hmm. you know, Elon Musk of Tesla or Steve Jobs of Apple come down from on high saying, here's what we're going to do. And the rank and file are attracted to that vision versus the rank and file having a vision that the senior leadership team hasn't created on their own. That that makes a ton of sense. Obviously, you know, if you think back to actual cults, there are not many that, you know, were kind of crowdsourced and then, you (laughs) know, became a thing. There's typically a cult leader that kind of that personality becomes the organization. And that actually makes a ton of sense. And I love the analogy you made with, uh, like a lot of people know how to lose weight, but that's just the knowledge of it. And having the ideas is not really where it is. And it actually reminded me of a book I just finished called Atomic Habits by James Clear, very big fan. Um, But the biggest part of establishing habits is identity. You know, somebody will put the, oh, I'm, I'm terrible with directions. Well, if you say that and you really believe it and you reinforce it, there will never be a time when you're not terrible at directions. And I feel that there are a lot of brands, especially in the innovation thing, I hear it all the time. Well, we're toothpaste. We don't do innovative things. Right. And that's, you know, that's the first step in never, ever becoming a cult brand or never, ever becoming an innovator of just deciding that that's not you. Yeah. Well, we see it the most in B2B. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, a lot of people will say, yeah, if I was Levi's, sure. If I was Porsche, I get it. But, you know, I'm selling accounting software or copy machines or I'm Dunder Mifflin selling copy paper. And what we like to say is let's just assume that you have cult-like capabilities and discover together that you can't achieve that status versus discount it right off the gate, you know, and say, well, it's never going to work for us because I've seen electric companies. I've seen uh, IT companies reap big benefits from applying some of these principles. I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't, say they've achieved cult-like status, but we like to say the spoils for even trying are well worth the effort uh, because you'll start to you improve your corporate culture, you improve the brand advocacy amongst your fan base, you reap more benefits from word of mouth, you're able to oftentimes wean yourself off of hyper-promotional activity where you're just kind of bribing people to shop from you. And so there's, there's a lot of benefits and a lot of joy to be found. That's the other part that's been so pleasant for me is I see people fall in love with their career again or their company again because again they've tethered themselves to something more noble than just getting the shareholders rich or lining the you know the executive team's pockets with uh, year-end bonuses and i love that and it's such a good point and it's actually come up multiple times on this podcast is that even if you don't achieve 100 success going in a better direction is going to get you closer to the goal or just in a better position. So I I kind of love that there is something for everybody in this kind of mindset, whether or not you are going to be Taco Bell and having people like theme their, their, their wedding after you, you know, even if you don't get to that status, you can really still jump ahead of a lot of the competition by a, a lot of these things. So one of the interesting 
things that uh, in an earlier conversation we landed on that it was it's not just strategies and tactics that are uh, behaviors shared by cult like brands, but it's what are you measuring? How are you uh, developing insights? What are some of the things on what cult brands uh, are doing differently in the measurement analytics and insights department are there? Two come to mind. One is, despite the fact that word of mouth is one of the paramount attributes of a cult-like brand, I'm actually not a fan of net promoter score as a KPI of word of mouth. And it's, it, the irony is that is literally the question, you know, on a scale of one to 10, would you refer or recommend? I think that we've learned that net promoter system is a better indicator of operational compliance are franchisees or retail outlets or dealerships or whatever. You know, you can say, well, these guys are getting a six, these guys are getting an eight or whatever. And you can compare at levels of uh, customer satisfaction. But true cult-like commitment or what we call audience engagement is much more about an alignment of values, a lot more of a personification of my beliefs. Um, you know, they become badges. You know, you, you wear these clothes, these just jewelry, you drive these cars as an indicator. This is what I want to put out into the world. This is what this is a reflection of me. Take Converse as a great example, right? I mean, it's really not that different of a shoe than Skechers or Airwalk or Vans. Mm -hmm. And yet there's different people that wear those as a way of trying to say, that's my tribe versus that's not my tribe. And so there's different ways to measure that. We, we have a tool that we like to use called customer EQ. There's actually an, an internal engagement one as well called employee EQ, but it gets into eight specific rational drivers and eight specific emotional drivers that are affecting people's, not just their purchase decisions, but their level of enthusiasm. You know, are they, they like I buy a lot of toothpaste, but I'm not particularly excited about, it's actually a lie. Now that I said, I, I actually love Sensodyne. <laughs> I have very sensitive gums and Sensodyne has, has made my life better, but you take maybe a pretty commoditized consumer package good. And you know, what is, what has Dove done that have rallied a whole new world of women to their cause? We're fascinated by that because it wasn't a change to the formula of the product. It wasn't a change to the pricing and distribution strategy. It was a change to the positioning and the messaging of the brand that got people lathered up, pun intended there, right? And so... Um, <laughs> I've, now I'm on a tangent where I forgot what your original question was. <laughs> the the measurement and the oh, yeah. Okay, the yeah. So yeah, I mentioned there's two of them. So one is right. stop stop thinking that you're doing your business a service by measuring net promoter score. That mm -hmm. is that has a place in the operational excellence of the business, but not as an indicator of true brand health and or customer engagement. And then the second deals with what we call brand economics. Um, Way too many marketing departments are chasing attribution metrics that are sketchy at best. They're trying to reverse engineer the quarterly sales based on email open rates, website conversion, you know, TV viewership impressions. And just because you know, there's that great quote that says, not everything that can be measured counts and not everything that counts can be measured, right? Mm, and so mm -hmm. we, we've, we've really tried to spend a lot of energy coming up with other economic indicators of a brand's performance, but it might be 
You know, your call center could weigh into that. The friendliness of your frontline associates could weigh into that. Your, your CSR strategies could weigh into that. And if you don't take the entirety of the ecosystem, you're just getting a lot of false positives and a lot of false sense of security. And so I'm, I'm less of a fan of pure play campaign ROI metrics and much a much bigger fan of what we call brand economics that says this combination of variables seems to be the most uh, beneficial way to get the desired outcome. I love that. And I think that hopefully that is a little bit encouraging or reassuring for marketers, because I think that displaying the value of brand has been such a challenge and the propensity to want to make it a hard number, because that's what the number people like really takes out of the picture. A lot of things that are, are strongly influencing the strength and magnetism of a brand. Yeah. I mean, so here's a very, I think, interesting example. In the late aughts, I'm in the boardroom at Blockbuster Video where the business is failing and channel managers responsible for direct mail or store sales or email marketing would come in parading campaign metrics that would imply we should give these people more money. Look at the ROI on these campaigns while the macro picture was this business is bleeding, you know, tens of millions of dollars. And it's one of the challenges of channel centric organizational structures is you can kind of interrogate data to tell it whatever you want it to say. Uh, but if they're so naive if they can't see the forest for the trees, if they're just staring at their tree saying, mm -hmm. look at my open rates are going up or our click through rates are going up. Look how many impressions this digital media bad, uh, you know, ad campaign provided us. And it's like, yeah, but guys, this business is weeks away from bankruptcy mm -hmm. and, 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 and you're oblivious to the macro impact of what we're talking about here. And so, you know, that was whatever that was 15, 16 years ago. And that's where mm -hmm. I was like, you know, we're, we're kind of creating a system that is designed to fail yeah. because we're optimizing individual components as opposed to understanding the interplay and the holistic customer journey and that's why a lot of things, it's why marketing is so difficult. It's why CMOs is the shortest tenured position on the C-suite is because there's, a, there's this false belief that it's a math exercise and it's not. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's, yeah. a, it's as much art as it is science. And because we don't know how to measure art, um, you know, I remember working uh, with the folks at Red Bull, the CMO told me that never once has the CEO said, if we do that, how many more cans of Red Bull are we going to sell? And like, what a freedom. Yeah. And it wasn't like this guy got to be oblivious to sales performance. He just didn't have to correlate that if we do that sponsorship, if we do that crazy activation, I'm going to sell 50,000 more cans that night because they were building a brand mm -hmm. and they weren't trying to just, uh, you know, optimize, you know, quarterly or monthly uh, sales targets. ANA Marketing Futures and Demand Metric are proud to present the Future of Marketing Report, A Road to Hypergrowth. Our research revealed two starkly different groups of marketers, hypergrowth marketers who are poised to win in the short and long term, and laggard marketers who are adrift in a sea of uncertainty and stagnancy. This report is aimed to capture and share crucial insights that will help all marketers prepared for the future, regardless of their sophistication and the uncertainty that transcends the world. To get your copy, visit ana.net slash hypergrowth. 
So back to the shared characteristics of cult-like organizations. One of the less obvious traits that I saw from your genome was remarkability. Uh, now, what are brands misunderstanding about becoming remarkable? And could you give us some examples of a truly remarkable brands? Yeah. So I'll ask you, Michael, what do you think is the best synonym for remarkable? So before we had our first conversation, and I'm not going to cheat by using that, I would say incredible, surprising, bewildering. Yes. This, and I would be wrong. <laughs> yeah. I, I had forgotten that, that we've already had this conversation. So yeah, I mean, brands, I think, spend too much time via advertising claiming hyperbole that the marketplace has gotten jaded on and, and doesn't believe anymore. Absolutely. And the reality is the best synonym of remarkable is notable or buzzworthy, literally mm -hmm. playing off the root word remark. Yep. And so if one of the attributes of cult brands is advocacy, people that are advocating or talking about the brand in positive ways, then you have to ask yourself, is that luck? Do you just, do you hope people are going to say something remarkable or have you baked something into the experience that they won't be able to help themselves, but talk about. And I, and you know, I, I moved here to Salt Lake. One of the brands that I'm crushing on right now is headquartered here is Traeger grills and they're, they're smoker grills mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and they spent less than a dollar. I believe is the number on providing ink to the inside of the boxes that their grills are shipped in so that when the people unpack the box, they can turn it inside out and it's decorated like a log cabin for the homeowner's children to play in because they remember how fun it was to get a refrigerator or a new lawnmower. You get these crazy size boxes and you can go to Instagram or Google images and see thousands of people it was just a small degree of thoughtfulness, mm -hmm. thoughtful intention about this is going to be thrown away. This is going to be waste. Well, what if it wasn't? How do you make getting a Traeger show up like a like Christmas morning kind of an idea? That was an intentional marketing strategy. Now, did it result in $100 million of sales? I don't know. I know they've gone from 40 to $600 million in the past decade. So mm -hmm. some part of that formula is we care about the consumer and we're thinking about everything that goes through another very local and low cost example is there. I don't know if we've talked about this before is um, the magic castle Inn in Los Angeles. I don't think so. I think this is a new one. So there, there's a pretty mediocre uh, hotel in Los Angeles called the magic castle Inn, And it kind of reminds me of, I'm old enough that I watched a show called Melrose place, but it was kind of this open air, apartment complex that has been renovated into a hotel complex and they had nothing but challenges, right? They don't have enough money to upgrade the whole thing to be like a five-star hotel. It's priced higher than say the courtyard down the road. I bet you it's at least 50, if not a hundred dollars more expensive than that. Uh, maybe because of its real estate or whatever their operating costs are kind of in the heart of Los Angeles. But they sat around and they put in right above the pool an old-fashioned red phone and a cheap sign that says Popsicle Hotline. And kids can walk up to that phone and an operator instantly picks up and says, what flavor? And they'll say cherry or orange or grape. And then somebody comes out from the front desk and serves the kids Popsicles at the pool. 
And, you know, uh, my kids will eat three or four popsicles a day each. So I'm probably costing them three extra dollars of mm -hmm. popsicle hard good cost, <laughs> but I'm spending a hundred dollars more for an mm -hmm. inferior product in terms of quality of bed, water pressure, you know, cleanliness, all that kind of stuff. But I go there because somebody was like, yeah, traveling with your kids, they, they need, there's also a frozen yogurt machine hidden in the laundry room. So like, the kids can run around and, and have this little surprise and delight and get you know, free Froyo. And it's like, somebody's just paying attention. And you know, you can, you can do it with hundreds of engineers if you're Tesla and do it so well that you never have to use paid advertising. You can do it with free samples uh, across the Costco store so that shopping Costco becomes an afternoon out. Or you can spend you know, tens or hundreds of millions of dollars on paid advertising trying to convince people you're, you're worth their time. That is so cool. And it is, there's just that bit of who is your brand as a, a person, a character, a 360 degree actual thing. And yeah, like, I mean, Traeger is an amazing uh, example of obviously that's within their margin and just the delight, the family centric delight that they are providing that ROI is, is incalculable but not just in a way that it might make an F, a CFO nervous. You know what I mean? It's like, you really can't put a number on that. So Traeger was you know, not a small brand by any means, but they weren't so in the spotlight that they couldn't touch what their legacy practices were. So they, they kind of had some room to operate, but what could larger, more legacy-based established brands, what steps could they take to become more cult-like? Yeah, so, so again, it comes back to your aspirations and your ambitions. So one of my favorite stories is Lego, one of my favorite cult brands. You know, they've always been successful. They were, they, I think they're one of the top-selling toys in the world. Mm -hmm. um, but they, they had gone through a period of time 15 years ago, maybe 10 years ago, where they had gotten so big that you start to wonder how long can we keep this up? And the sales started to slow in terms of their growth. And they became very operationally efficient and focused on cutting costs. And they had, they had made some bets that didn't play out like Lego land as an example. Um, and there's a board meeting or not a board meeting, an executive meeting where they're saying like, what are we going to do here team? Like we're, we're, we're starting to slip. And I just imagine I wasn't in the room, but I can imagine the conversation of somebody recommending, well, let's start discounting. You know, we, we are pretty expensive and maybe we should start to, you know, do more buy one, get one free kind of deals. Uh, maybe somebody else could have focused on, well, maybe we need to get out of some of our premium standalone mall channels and get into more Walmarts and do more with, uh, you know, direct to consumer. And, you know, somebody in the back of the room says, I think we should make a movie. And I just like the, 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 where did that come from? It was so atypical. Mm -hmm. And, and then it's like, well, how much is that going to cost? He's like, oh, probably $90 million. Well, it's like, we're in this meeting talking about how to save money. And you have the audacity to say, let me spend $90 million doing something that we don't have any proven competence at doing. But, you know, taking a page from Disney, the guy realizes 
we're not in the toy plastic blocks business. We are in the imagination business Mm -hmm. and we've got to create opportunities and create conversation that reminds people of that. And, and, and they just happen to do just a a bang up job with it. I think Mm -hmm. the movie alone has grossed over $400 million. So just in ticket sales, they quadrupled their investment, but then you start looking at how it re-engaged the fan base, how it got not just my kids, but me. I mean, you look behind me, I got a Lego mm-hmm. ATAT or an AT-AT Walker thing. It's like, um, it was, that's an example. And, you know, whether you're, you're Red Bull dropping a guy out of outer space, whether you're, you know, Skittles doing the world's most bizarre creative, you know, t- and it's like, if you're just doing what's expected, you're not doing enough to endear yourself. It's kind of like, you know, in a, in a relationship, my wife wants me to surprise her once in a while, keep the romance alive, bring home flowers, take her on a surprise weekend getaway. Brands need to be finding those kinds of conversations of what are we doing to help our customers understand how special they are and we want to be to them. And it's different than the blocking and tackling of just a functional delivery of let's put more on the shelf and watch them fly by by putting a discount on them. Before we kind of pivot the podcast to talking about some subjects that we talk about with all of our guests, if folks are, they're locked in, they have the ambition to become a cult-like brand and get people that hyped up for what they're all about, uh, how can they learn more about you and the Cult Collective? So we try to provide a ton of free content at cultideas.com. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, we have this annual event, a thousand business leaders come in person, hundreds more join on virtual uh, channels. It happens every April called the cultgathering.com or cultgathering.com, not the. And, and then of course, we, you know, they can retain our services. That's what we do. We go in and coach and advise businesses of all sizes on which principles are most likely going to provide the biggest bang for their buck. Uh, There's eight, but they don't have to perfect all eight of them. Most are really, really good at three or four of them. And um, it doesn't take long. It's not like you have to make this sacrifice. It says, well, we'll do this in five years from now. We're going to see the benefits of it. It can be uh, within the same calendar year of starting to change. And without spending any more money, usually we're just redeploying the discretionary dollars that they're already spending but they're spending it on say paid media channels or promotional margin eroding offers that we could be like, what if we repurpose some of that into some elements of your product or your service or your customer experience that will matter more. Love it. So cultideas.com, that is where you can get some insights and resources and cultgathering.com for the annual event in April. Am I right? Yes, sir. Excellent. Excellent. So moving along to some of the questions we ask all of our guests, this next one is kind of open-ended deliberately. Chris, what are your thoughts and feelings on diversity, equity, and inclusion? Well, it's, it's vital, right? Um, it's, it seems to be more vogue of late as people have sort of been woke to the, the idea that we are not as diverse or as equitable or as inclusive as we should be. Um, but I mean, I think any business that hopes to remain relevant 
needs to not only demonstrate through representation that they prioritize DEI, but that they should appreciate that that is where competitive advantage can be found because it's it's in that collision of backgrounds and ideas and ideologies that we can hash out real real brilliance. I love it. I love it. And yeah, and that is really what we found. It's like this isn't just warm and fuzzy. This is the realities of the world and particular the realities of the future if you want to be a viable growing organization. So completely agree on that. All right, Chris. Now, some folks, this isn't a tough question. Some folks, this brings them to their knees. We're about to find out which which uh, type of guest you are. Chris, co-founder, CEO of the Cult Collective. What is your favorite album of all time and why? You're not going to like this answer. You don't know me like that. But I I can't even remember the last album that I've purchased. I know the first album I purchased was uh, Weird Al Yankovic as a 10 or 11 year old kid. But, you know, I'm not that, um, I'm not that musical. I, I, to me, music is something that you have on in the background. Um, mm. I go to a concert on occasion. I'm actually going to an air supply concert uh, on Thursday night. Oh, that's dope. That's awesome. But I do that because my wife enjoys music. I, I, I listen to top 40 of whatever's on the radio and um, it's not my, it's not where I invest a lot. I, I like to say in order to be a real expert at something, the amount of things you have to be a non-expert in is embarrassing. And I put things like music and fashion and elements of pop culture. Like I don't know which Kardashian is which. Uh, so there's a lot of things that make me a bit of a pop culture or a social uh, idiot, but um, I think it's a, I'm willing to pay that price because there's some things I want to know a lot about, and that's business and branding. That makes a lot of sense to me. And I love that to be a, a, an expert in some fields, you need to be a not expert in a lot of fields. Uh, was it the was it the, the self-titled Weird Al? Yes, it, it was, I, I believe. The, Polka Party, maybe? Well, the big one was Eat It was the big song on there. All right, we're going with that just because the you know the the first album you ever buy has a special. Well, let me tell you, my sons. I mean, I did in the past five years. I've been to a Weird Al concert, and it was just pure entertainment. Mm -hmm. And I was there with my teenage kids, so again, they're like that. That concert is chemically designed for them. But they he he ended it with the Yoda song, and like twenty marching stormtroopers come onto the stage and do a rocket kicking thing. And I'm just like, this guy is just a pure entertainer. And, I, and there's a, there's a new bio, a biopic show on him coming out in November with um, the guy that did Harry Potter is playing uh, Weird Al Yankovic. So really? if, any of your, if any of your listeners are fans, yeah, check it out. I don't know which one it's on Hulu maybe or something, Roku or something like that. Yeah, you will, we'll be able to find, find it out there. The Weird Al Nation that mm -hmm. uh, also happens to uh, like hearing about the future of marketing. So let's bring it up to the current time then. Is there anything that you're listening to now, whether it's a song, an artist, a podcast, or maybe even a book, what's exciting you nowadays? I, I consume a lot of podcasts, um, you know, on a on an entertainment, you know, mindless, fun podcast. I really like Smartless. I like Conan Needs a Friend. I like <laughs> Literally with Rob Lowe. Mm -hmm. But um, from a professional side, I listen to Pivot a couple of times a week because I have a crush on Scott Galloway. I listen to his Prof G podcast. 
uh, as well. For those that are in the marketing and advertising space, I listened to a podcast called The Two Bobs, uh, which is a funny name because it's named after the um, a scene, I think, from Office Space. But it's with David Baker and Blair. Oh, M. my God. <laughs> um, yes. I, I really enjoy the, the audio format of podcasts and it's, I, I don't commute anymore with COVID. And when I, with my move to Salt Lake, I work from home, but uh, I've, I've missed out on that 30 minute of drive time where I could get, uh, you know, a lot of podcasts listening in. Chris, thank you so, so much. Uh, this has been a phenomenal conversation and I really appreciate you being a guest here on the marketing futures podcast. You're very welcome, Michael. Thank you for having me. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Marketing Futures Podcast. Have an idea for a topic or guest for a future episode? Shoot us a note at marketingfutures at ana.net. Be sure to subscribe to the Futures Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. And as always, if you're looking to get smart on the future, point your browsers to ana.net slash futures.